A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and of course you would be right, but then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, in what is the final episode before the summer recess, we'll be joined by the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, John Anderson. John served as an MP for 18 years, with six of those as leader of the National Party and Deputy Prime Minister. We'll find out more about politics down under and how faith mixes with politics there too. But first, this week there's been a row within the Labour Party about the controversial two-child benefit cap. The cap means that families on universal credit receive no additional payments for third or subsequent children. Labour said that it's a dreadful policy, but that it won't be able to afford to scrap it in current circumstances if they end up in government at the next election. The Conservative government's original stated aim of the policy, as well as saving money, was to ensure that families in receipt of means-tested benefits, and I quote, should face the same financial choices about having children as those supporting themselves solely through work. And many people do support the policy. The Fabian Society, with close ties to the Labour Party, found that more than half the public were in favour of the cap. People believe that parents should take responsibility for how many children they have and can afford. However, the COVID pandemic, followed by a cost of living crisis, means that many people have lost their jobs, fallen ill, or are simply finding their earnings no longer cover their outgoing. The Child Poverty Action Group found that 71% of poor children live in working families, and that this policy has in fact actively pushed families into poverty. These issues are far more complex than a tabloid headline would suggest, and such broad brush policies have had unintended consequences. Shockingly, the British Pregnancy Advice Service has warned that the two-child cap has led to more abortions, as women fear they cannot afford to raise another child. Christians on the left, Labour's Christian group, have tweeted to say that they believe the two-child cap is incompatible with ending child poverty and is a key driver of food bank use. We talked last week about the importance of long-term planning for future generations. The Child Poverty Action Group has estimated that child poverty costs the UK nearly £40 billion per year in terms of lost earnings and income tax, unemployment benefits and additional spending on public services due to child poverty, such as pupil premium and children's social services. Of course, there will always be those who abuse the system, but children are always the innocent parties, and I'm, I'm not sure we should punish them for the choices of their parents. And in any event, today's economic circumstances are pushing people into benefits who have never needed them before. Yet at the same time, can we afford to keep supporting them? The Office for Budget Responsibility has predicted that UK national debt will be three times our GDP in 50 years' time. The head of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, Paul Johnson, noted that we cannot begin to afford current, the current welfare state without very big tax rises. And if we want to avoid big tax rises, he said, we need to dramatically reduce expectations of what government does. Wow. Well, of course, Christians will take different views on what should be done in response to that. The author of the two-child policy, Ian Duncan Smith, is a Christian and did so in order to encourage personal responsibility. But the Bishop of Durham recently piloted a private member's bill through the House of Lords to abolish it, calling it immoral. So where and how do we draw the lines? As Christians weigh up different parties' proposals, there are three questions we can ask. Firstly, do we see in their approach a sense of compassion for the poor and marginalised? 
1 John chapter 3, verse 17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Secondly, do we see a relational approach to policy? We're all part of families and communities with a responsibility towards one another. Are people viewed as human beings with infinite worth, with commitments to others, or treated as isolated individuals? Thirdly, are the causes of problems being addressed as well as the consequences? Picking up the pieces might cost more than tackling the reasons why people fall into poverty in the first place. Ultimately, our welfare state, like our other public services, was designed for a different time. There is a limit to what the state can do. But the recent Theos report, called a torn safety net, warns that the COVID pandemic and the rising cost of living means that faith and community groups, who have been offering so much provision in their local areas, are also reaching the end of their resources, as their supporters can no longer afford to give quite so much of their time and money. But our God is infinitely creative, and we know he cares deeply for those who are struggling. In the words of Psalm 113, verse 7, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So let's pray that he will raise up thinkers and policymakers who can lay hold of his inspiration and compassion to find new approaches and solutions to these issues, which may seem insurmountable to us. And let's be encouraged by Ephesians 3 verse 20, that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, it's our privilege this week to speak with John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister uh, of Australia. John, you are very welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Well, let's start off where we always do with our guests and ask you to share something with us of your faith, how you came to call yourself a Christian. Well, broadly speaking, I'm a sixth generation Australian, Australian on the land, uh, Scottish forebears, uh, nominal Presbyterians, I suppose you'd say. But during my teenage years, uh, a couple of really quite extraordinary family tragedies took me to a place where I started to really question. And I was at uh, Australia's oldest boarding school, as it happens, in Sydney. Uh, and uh, at the time that I was questioning, we had a young chaplain who one day started to talk about a God who loves and can be loved. And in this day and age, I think I would have asked for a trigger warning. It may be very angry, the idea of a personal God. Mm. But I resolved to go and explore because it, there was something happening at the school. There were quite a few people starting to explore Christian faith, which was at that sort of school, uh, not a common thing. So I went along to talk to one of the masters who lived in the school grounds, <laughs> thinking he was, he'd been my cricket coach and he was my commerce teacher and thinking he was old and wise. I look back on it, he was all of 27. <laughs> uh, to ask him, you know, what do you believe and why? And I came out of his flat convinced of the truth of Christianity. Mm. I don't say I've always found it easy. I certainly would not claim some moral superiority. I think for me, the central element of faith is that it reduces you to your knees and uh, it is, at its heart is the willingness to recognise that I bring no merit to anything really other than perhaps an intention to try and behave mm. as best I can. The secret to Christian faith is in fact faith mm. uh, in, in, in the work of the risen Christ. So a hugely profound change for you at that point in your life. Um, it was. Something 
Uh, forgive me for uh, rushing through your days here. Um, Not but, at all. But something led you into politics. So how did that come about? Um, at the precocious age of 27, a retiring federal member, remember Australia is a federation like America, mm. slightly different to Britain, although I think you're trying to turn yourself into one with devolution. <laughs> um, uh, and... Uh, the federal parliament was set up. It was a nation created out of a set of English colonies, basically, by an act of the British parliament in 1901. So I was, uh, as I say, at the precocious age of 27, asked by a retiring member who'd been a great sportsman and played a lot of cricket with my father before and after the Second World War and so forth, um, to run in his place. And I was flabbergasted. I hadn't considered it. I'd always been interested in the public debate. I probably always enjoyed a good argument. Um, I've always been interested in the exchange of ideas, but never had I seen myself as a federal member of parliament. I don't think anybody else had either. And after I picked myself up off the floor, I went round and, for better or for worse, asked a few older men, really more of my father's generation, what they thought of this extraordinary idea because he told me I had a week to think about it. I said I didn't think I could do it. One of the reasons I gave, I said, I'm not sure people want to vote for a a Bible-believing Christian. Mm. Uh, but what amazed me was that the three people that I approached and I probably respected most all said quietly, you should have a go. So I did. And that began a journey that I'd not anticipated. I was uh, a history graduate from the University of Sydney who decided to go farming and the family business instead of pursuing uh, you know, law or history or any of those sorts of things. And was actually enjoying farming and farming in Australia is a pretty challenging business, but it's also pretty rewarding. And that's what my family have been doing for a very long time. I hadn't seen myself really leaving it. Was the National Party kind of the obvious choice to you I mean, for, for British listeners? National Party is the party of um, kind of the countryside, a, a very much a, a rural party, has tended to be in a sort of centre-right coalition with the lib more metropolitan liberals, if that's a fair way of describing them. Why the National Party and describe them to us a little bit? Well, it had been the Country Party, mm. and its name, of course, said a great deal. Uh, and overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in those days, people in rural areas, if they had a political allegiance, it was to the Country Party. And it would have been seen as socially conservative, probably middle of the road, even slightly left economically. Mm. But I didn't fit that mould, I'm afraid. I'm an economic uh, liberal. Uh, I believe in uh, small government, in free enterprise. Um, and I'm, I was never a great admirer of some of the statutory marketing arrangements that, as a farmer, I was shackled with. So I probably was to the right of centre on economic matters as well. And in many ways, I was to go on and be part of the key economic body when we won government in 1996. And I learnt just how unpopular you make yourself when you really engage in economic reform. But mm. when the fruits come in, everyone rejoices and you're a hero. <laughs> this seems to be lost, I'm afraid, right across the Western world at the moment. And I was talking to the treasurer that I served with for so long, a fellow believer and very good friend. You can find a podcast with him because he would be one of the economic statesmen of the Western world at the moment, Peter Costello, 11 years. And I think it was 11 budget surpluses. We paid out the national debt 
we went into the GFC with no national debt. That was pretty rare. Um, and people would say, now that was a great achievement. But he made the observation in one of my, the podcasts that I do, that he said, the best youth policy we could ever devise is a low debt policy. Because what we're doing at the moment is we're not living in our means and it's going to cripple our children and our grandchildren. And I'm an Anglophile. I love Britain. I love your country. But I cannot believe the legacy you're passing on to your young people. I'm sorry to say I, I'm staggered by it. It's, it's a very serious problem for young Britons. So we've, um, we've looked at long, long-termism or the absence of it in, in, uh, in politics and how you know, good Christian leaders need to think about the next generation and beyond. Um, but for you, going back to that time, so you entered government after 96 and then you became leader and then deputy prime minister. How did that come about? Was, was your faith ever a seen as a, as, a, as a potential challenge? Was it seen as something that was um, a problem for you electorally or, or not? Uh, firstly, just the mechanics of it. Uh, we have been in coalition with the Liberal Party. In your language, that really would be an amalgam of city conservatives and country conservatives, with perhaps the odd Lib Dem thrown in, if I can put it that way. Yeah. That would be the sort of the mix. The anti-Labor forces in this country. They've been in government for more time than anybody else since that coalition was formed in 1949. And with only minor interruptions, it's continued ever since. And the tradition is that the leader of the junior party uh, in the coalition becomes the deputy prime minister. Mm. So that's how I became deputy prime minister. Would I say it was a plus or a minus? I'd say in those days it was a neutral. Of course, I had people who were very derogatory and dismissive uh, or even hostile to my faith. Uh, but equally, there were many who, in a country like Australia, where I think it's fair to say authenticity is respected, has been and still is. So there was a willingness to say, well, that's what he believes and he's open about it and good on him. And indeed, that in some ways was the hallmark of the Prime Minister that I served with, John Howard, who, who himself is quite a legendary figure in the Western mm. world now, I think, 11 mm. years as Prime Minister. Uh, and people would say of John Howard, they may not agree with him, but you know what he believes in and he will defend it and it makes sense. And you know that he believes that that is the best road to, if you like, human flourishing. And, and I think that's something else, that conviction factor that is also missing uh, in Western politics today. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to John Anderson, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, John, you led your party during that period of time in government in the early noughties, shall we say. I guess, I guess one major event that happened during that time would have been the 9-11 terrorist attacks and then the war on terror that followed. Uh, how did that shape your role and your time in office? Uh, well, in the immediate sense, pretty significantly, because our Prime Minister was actually only a mile from where the plane ploughed into the Pentagon. He was in America. I was back here as acting Prime Minister. And it was obviously a very profound moment. I think in retrospect, it's easier to understand it. That, that's true of all things, isn't it? The history should be written in part at the time when it happens, Mm. Then 20 years later, and that's about 20 years, 22 years ago now, and then 100 years on when you really understand it. But to look back on it now, what I would say is this. 
it was a very profound warning that those who had said after the fall of the Berlin Wall that democracy had won out. Remember um, uh, Francis Fukuyama, he wrote the book, mm. um, uh, the, uh, uh, the End of um, uh, uh, Democracy. End, what was it called? I think it's uh, The End of History. Is that right? Uh, the End of History. It was a play on Karl Marx because Karl Marx had said the end of history would be a happy Marxist nirvana. And, and, and what Fukuyama meant, and it was a common view, America started to seriously cut its defence budget and all the rest of it. Democracy was the end of history. It had won out. 9-11 showed us that there were people who loathed the Western model of democracy, who saw the West as degenerate, uh, as even evil, uh, and were intent upon its destruction. And in many ways, you see, that was only 11 or 12 years after the uh, bringing down of the Berlin Wall, it's only got worse since. And we now have what one former Prime Minister of Australia is called the arc of autocracy. You know, uh, certain major players in the world today who really are convinced that the West is on its way out, that it's divided, that it's degenerate, that its time is over, uh, and uh, that there's time for a new world order. And this plays into a very interesting space because mm -hmm. we in the West have essentially been engaging in a very great deal of, at the very least, self-doubt, at the worst, self-loathing, mm. where we no longer really trust one another, we don't trust our institutions, we don't trust the politicians, the senior people in banking or the church, whatever. Worse mm. than that, though, we don't trust the underlying ideas, the beliefs and the values that gave rise to those institutions of freedom. Yeah. So there is a revolution going on. There really is. We need to be quite clear about that. This is a civilizational moment because not many young people today would stand up and say, I believe in Western civilization. They would laugh at that term, many of them. And yet not so long ago, an eminent a figure as Kenneth Clark was, would, have, would have laughed at the idea that you didn't have such a thing as Western civilization. Mm. And I guess when you look at what's happening in Eastern Europe at the moment and uh, Russia's increasing boldness over the last decade, we look at the power of China and their in intelligent forms of, you know, neo-colonization of, of Africa and other parts of the world, we see what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, you begin to see that the alternatives to Western democracy, for all of Western democracy's flaws, um, they're far, far worse, and they are a threat. So if we don't believe in Western liberal democracies, then that's a threat. Would you go along with the idea that, I mean, it's been popularised by many people, including the author uh, Tom Holland, that um, essentially Western liberal democratic values are at their root Christian values? I think it's, it's self-evident to anybody who wants to be honest. Uh, and there are plenty of atheists, as well as people like Tom, who I know and respect, who are not necessarily atheists, but don't fully personally embrace Christianity, who will point to the same thing. Um, Australia's longest serving prime minister, who was a great friend of Churchill's, interestingly enough, uh, Sir Robert Gordon Menzies, wrote that democracy is not so much a machine as a spirit in which no matter your station in life or your wealth or lack of it, where you live in Australia, we recognise that all souls are equal in the eyes of heaven. Tom Holland uh, will tell you, I think, I don't think I'd be in any way misrepresenting him here, that the key to democracy is the idea that every individual 
according to a higher authority, must be respected because they have worth and dignity, that I might meet somebody that I particularly dislike or I'm disdainful of, but I'm obliged to recognise that a higher authority is said that person matters as much to that higher authority as I do. Well, that's been washed out with Christianity Mm. and with it a lot of history. And just, you know, I mean, I know that in Britain, in some ways, colonialisation is seen as the original sin. Well, you know, I'm... I guess, the beneficiary of um, British colonisation. And, and I've been very privileged. Uh, I, 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 like most Australians, you know, we're fortunate to live in Australia. Uh, and I'm aware that we need to be honest about the downsides, but then stop and think of a couple of upsides. Let me mention one. Every empire, every collection of human beings of any size and power down through the ages, they've all kept slaves and nearly all of them have traded slaves you know, a more pernicious evil is impossible to think of. Only one empire has voluntarily, without a major civil war, determined to give up slavery and to end it. And that was the British Empire. Mm. And some might say empire was a terrible thing, but just stop and think it had the power to put its Royal Navy on the high seas to stop other people, other nations, like the Middle Eastern nations, which were rounding up massive amounts of African slaves and exporting them from doing that sort of thing. What's my point? It's not to whitewash. It's just to say that there's always another side of the story. And the anti-slavery movement, I would say, the anti that, that ended the African slave trade, just to focus on that for one more second, incredibly important to remember. It was led by, I hate to say this, privileged, wealthy, white Christians, many of them men, who saw that in reality all human beings mattered and they struck the first political slogan of the modern age, which was a picture of an African looking up imploringly, he's in chains, and Josiah Wedgwood made them, the different variations of it everywhere. You can find them on the website. Mm. Am I not a man and a brother? Well, that came straight out of the Christian concept of respect for other human beings. Mm. Another thought too, my father nearly died in the Second World War in the North African desert as part of Montgomery's great pushback against Rommel. If the Brits had not stood when no one else did in 1939, that civilizational moment might have turned out horrendously worse than it did. And yet today we want to demonize without recognizing the upside of Churchill. So you see a defaced statue, and I saw a brilliant comment online about that. Also, you think he was a problematic, that's the word they all like to use. You should see the man he defeated. <laughs> There's something in there you this. Go. There's a bit of, uh, you know, I'm not blindly yeah. saying we've got everything right. I'm just saying we need to recognise there's a lot to be thankful for. The greatest human rights of movement of all times came mm-hmm. out of Britain. No doubt about that. Uh, and a lot to otherwise recognise, I think, in that our way of governance means that we can correct things that we realise need change peacefully. Mm-hmm. Don't throw that away. Do we think, I mean, I've... A lot of what you say is is interesting in the sense that if we can characterize it like this, in the New Testament, um, certainly in the Gospels, that the bad guys in the verticomers tend to be the Pharisees, and these are folks who are very very clear about the rules and the laws of the day. Some of them are God given, some of them are man made, and there's no obvious room for forgiveness or grace, um, and no opportunity to. Um, have a second or third or 22nd or 23rd chance. Do you think that is reflected very much in our discourse now, particularly of the issues yep. you've just been raising? I do. 
I think that your point is a really pertinent one, Tim. And in fact, it was not a Christian. It was um, uh, the um, uh, uh, Lord uh, Jonathan Sachs in your own country, member of the House of Lords, and mm. I think the chief rabbi in Great Britain. In a conversation, he observed, I asked him about this question. I said, we seem to be new. There's a new absolutism abroad, a great moralism. And one of the things that features in this new moralism is that you don't forgive. And he said, well, a society that doesn't forgive is like a family that won't forgive. Mm. Ultimately, it won't work. I said, what happens when forgiveness is, the art of forgiveness is no longer practiced? And remember, Jesus said seven times 70. In other words, go on turning the other cheek. Uh, that's not an injunction to government so much as an injunction to each one of us. I think it's important to make that distinction. Times There are times when government should act, should, you know, um, seek justice and impose justice. Uh, but um, the, uh, uh, and he made the comment though that you could only hope if there was no forgiveness that people might forget. And the great problem there is that social media means that no one forgets. You can say something and have it brought up against you 20 or 30 years later. And I think society's paying a terrible price for this because we've, it's an act of dis, uh, an age of disengagement. A lot of people feel they can't put their poor up for public life. And I've had a lot of people say, I did something 30 years ago and it'll be dragged out against me. We mm. ought to be more mature than that and say, well, you might have actually learnt massively from that issue. It might not be the same person. You may very well have become infinitely mm. wiser, more humble and more recognising of the need to look after your neighbour. You're just the sort of leader we want to have. But no, we say you did something, you you know, you know, inhaled or something 30 years ago. So, well, that probably yeah. wouldn't get you killed these days. But, you know, you know the sort of thing I mean. Yeah, yeah. I wonder just how many good people wow. we are losing to the system because of our lack of forgiveness. Yeah, great point. I mean, if you are if you are my age and even older, then you don't have a social media footprint from when you were a very young person. And, uh, and that feels real blessing. And then you think how... Um, squeaky clean brackets boring <laughs> do you have to be to enter politics if you are you know under 35 let's say but let, let's move on just quickly to where things are now and in particular interested in how things are in Australia you you said that when you became leader and became deputy prime minister soon afterwards that you were in a, a place where your faith was kind of a neutral some people took you down for it some people thought it was an advantage. It was um, a zero-sum game, perhaps, electorally speaking. What's it like for a Bible-believing Christian serving in Australian politics today, would you say? I think it's tougher. I think there's a great temptation to say, if you must be a person of faith, keep it private. That is a denial of one of the four great freedoms we have, mm. and freedom of conscience and belief which really came out of the stupidity and the barbarity of burning people at the stake when they disagreed with you. We learned that we had to live with one another's deepest differences in an atmosphere of respect. But then it's freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of property right. Now, they're all under attack. Um, and this idea that you should be private about your faith, really? Should Winston Churchill, should, um, should, should William Wilberforce and his backers have said, oh, my conscience says slavery is wrong, but I'll keep quiet about it. I'll leave my faith at the cabinet door. Not that he was ever in cabinet, mind you. He was on the backbench all his life, even though when he was young, he was seen as a future prime minister. He was prepared to make sacrifices for things he believed in. It was not a good career move in the House of Commons, I dare say, in those days to be uh, a, a, an evangelical Christian. But he changed the world anyway. 
and my, my point is, seriously, should, should Lord Shaftesbury have not spoken up when he thought it was wrong to stump children, to send them up chimneys, and for women to have to work themselves to the bone instead of looking after their children? Should he have kept quiet? Come on. This is a mechanism to silence people of faith because they're the one people, the one group you are still allowed to freely attack today. And it's only possible, Tim, I throw this challenge out, because of the profound ignorance of our history, of our culture, and of the dangers that we are posing at this civilizational moment. All great civilizations have been powered up by a set of powerful ideals and beliefs and fueled by a common commitment to those ideals and beliefs. Well, we're running out of fuel and the substitute fuels we're finding are not running the engine very well. It's spluttering badly. Mm. And those who would say it's not, I would simply say, have a look at how our young children are doing. It's true in your country. It's mm. true in mine. Record levels of anxiety, of depression, of self-harm, of trauma, of boys falling further and further behind, worse and worse educational outcomes, less and less satisfaction. Uh, don't tell me that the progressive model is working terribly well. The, the, the way we've found ourselves in recent times in the West, the division, the breakdown of trust, of harmony, identity politics setting, people of the same, uh, you know, uh, if you like, uh, nationality or whatever, same community against one another. This is not a good way to proceed. The alternative fuels are not working well. Let's ask ourselves some hard questions again. Let's be a little more respectful of those who say, perhaps we ought to reconsider our own foundational beliefs. Well, John, th thanks so much for joining us. Before we do uh, close, let's just think a little bit about what you're doing now. Um, you've set out a, uh, a great clarion call, really, for the Western world to... Um, reconnect maybe with the Christian faith that has very much spawned the liberal democracy that we kind of enjoy in the West and uh, and have probably undervalued massively for decades. Um, so what role are you playing now in the life that you now lead? Uh, well, I, I, we live on the farm and we spend some time in Sydney and a little bit of time travelling. I do my own video podcast series, which has demonstrated to me there's a real appetite for deep thinking and clear thinking uh, because it's, you know, it's really moved on very well. Mind you, they're quite expensive to produce and they've, uh, they've continued to lose money. I have to say, Tim, <laughs> not that I ever wanted to monetize them, but it'd be nice if they broke even, but we do it as a community service. Uh, people seem to appreciate it. And that takes a bit of time. I still chair three not for profits, research organizations, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm at that stage of life where there's grandchildren and so forth to, uh, to attend to. So um, I'm thankful to have had a, a long and interesting life to this point in time. I'm in my mid-60s um, and still keep very busy, but I'm aware that the years are moving on. Well, uh, John, we're really grateful to you for what you do, for your witness when you were in office and your witness since. Um, and as somebody who's a fan of your broadcast work now, uh, I will make a point of carry on listening to you and the way that you faithfully try to engage people thinking about those deep issues. Uh, John, it's been an absolute blessing to have you with us and uh, we really wish you well and may God go with you. 
Tim, thank you. It's been a pleasure being with you. And I look forward to the next time we can meet in person. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. And there's a strong chance I'll be answering it on an episode when we come back in September. Well, this week, John in Cheshire has been in touch and he says this. He said, Tim, I've enjoyed recent episodes in which you spoke to those wanting to become MPs. With all the pressures, criticism and negative headlines, is it still a career you'd recommend? Well, short answer, John, is yes. But uh, you may have noticed that at the moment we're on 68 MPs and counting who've said that they're not standing again at the next election. That's more than 10 percent of MPs who are, if we can use the phrase, throwing in the towel ahead of the next election for various reasons. Some because they've just got to the stage of retirement, others because they've just kind of had enough. So there are plenty of people who reach a different conclusion to me. My view, absolutely, it is a, a career, a vocation that I would recommend for those for whom it fits and for whom there is a calling. I think as a Christian, I am massively aided in so many ways by the fact that I know that I'm not here to make the world perfect. And so the fact that the world around me seems far from it, it's sad, but it doesn't demoralise me because I know God is sovereign. And so whilst it's not my job, and it wouldn't be possible even if it was, for me to change the world and make it perfect, I can serve in the place where he has put me and make a difference, however small, the lives of some people. And that to me is hugely rewarding. I also, I guess, in the position that I have, um, should we say a post-ambitious state, as a Christian who is a member of parliament and has some small profile, it's the opportunity for me to share the gospel and to be open about my faith and hopefully therefore help others to do the same. And maybe even more importantly, uh, to use that profile so that some people who've not heard the gospel uh, might hear it and some who've not responded to it yet might do so. So, yeah, it's a job I love. It's a job that gives me the ability to serve people. It's a way of living out my life as a Christian in the place that God has put me. So if you feel the call, don't turn it down. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together for this series in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this radio show. We thank you for Marcus, who helps us to produce it. We thank you for everybody at Premier, who does such a remarkable job in all the things that they do in helping us to record these words every week. And we thank you for those who listen. We pray that you would bless them and help them to take from this what you would have them take from this. We thank you also for all of our guests, people who've given up their time um, to share with us their faith and their role in politics and how the two fit together. Um, summertime is still a time of hard work for most people. Um, and although Parliament goes into recess, MPs and all the members of the devolved assemblies will still be working. We do pray for rest for all those involved in politics, just like everybody else, and that that rest would be something which is a gift from you and which aids the not just our recuperation and our honouring of you by um, by by being obedient to that uh, requirement that we take Sabbath, but also it might be a time when people in politics might think wise thoughts and develop their thinking in ways which will serve people well, and that Parliament will return in September fresher, wiser, more just, 
and more uh, with an open ear to your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. This is the final show of the series, as we've said, as Parliament prepares to enter recess. We're going to be back in September. In the meantime, don't forget you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for a mucky business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash a mucky business. It's been brilliant having you with us. Thank you.